The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And I'm really glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. You know, one of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. How, how many of you like that movie out there? Yeah, it's a great movie, right? Classic. We watch it every year as a family. It's a great story. Set in this little mountain town called Bedford Falls, there was kind of a, a towny guy who always wanted to leave, who never could, who was sort of coerced into taking over the savings and loan that his father ran, and, and he just labors away for pennies, but serving other people his whole life, thinking his life hasn't made a difference. And then uh, $8,000 disappear because of the, just the foolishness of Uncle Billy. And uh, George Bailey finds himself $8,000 in the hole facing federal investigators, time in prison, and he's at a point of crisis. And someone utters to him, you know what, man, actually it's the evil Mr. Potter, utters to him, you're worth more dead than alive, as he looks at his life insurance policy. And there's this scene at the kind of the, the, the pivotal moment in the movie where George Bailey finds himself sitting in this little bar called Martini's. He's a desperate man at the end of himself, and he utters up a whispered prayer from the bar stool. Perhaps you remember this if you've seen the movie. I quoted it exactly. God, oh God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, oh God. I won't spoil the movie for you. But I find it interesting that George Bailey's final strategy when all else had failed, he even went to the evil Mr. Potter to try to get a loan. When every other option failed, the last option on the menu item of options was prayer. It was his Hail Mary pass, if you will. When all else had failed, he turned to prayer. Isn't that sometimes how it can be? So much of the time, prayer is seen, at least culturally, not so much in the church, but at least culturally, prayer is seen as a, as a Hail Mary when all else fails, when all human ingenuity has come to an end, when planning and plotting and scheming and wisdom and effort has ended, then as a Hail Mary on your face in utter desperation, a prayer is lifted. It's been said that there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. It's those foxhole moments when we've been brought to the very end of ourselves, which I would say is the grace of God, that when we've been brought to the very end of ourselves, that prayer is often lifted. But what if prayer wasn't a Hail Mary? What if it wasn't a last-ditch effort? What if prayer wasn't the final option on the menu or the last-minute desperate plea of the defeated man or woman? But what if prayer was an ever-present reality in the life of the saint? What if communing with God was common and continuous in your life and in my life? What if the life of the individual and the life of the community was marked by constant, consistent, and continuous communing with God. If that were the case, how might that change the tenor of those moments of crisis? How might that carry the community and the individual in the worst of times? What if communing with God through prayer was so common that it was second nature, like breathing? What if it was so ingrained in your daily practices and rhythms that it just became a second nature reality of your life? Not a Hail Mary, but your very breath. It reminds me of athletics, actually. I was talking to Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Aaron on, 
On, two, on Thursdays, we are reviewing the sermon, and Aaron reminded me of the neuroplasticity of the brain. Nothing like a former hospital executive to remind a pastor of the neuroplasticity of the brain. But Aaron reminded me of how the brain works, the stages of muscle memory. There's the cognitive stage, the very beginning stages when you're learning something new. Movements are slow. Movements are inefficient. There's high activation of the prefrontal cortex, which is your brain's thinking region. I think of that defeated and terrified George Bailey sitting on the bar stool uttering, uttering up a, a robotic and cumbersome prayer engaging the, the frontal cortex. Then there's the associative stage which is where movements become more and more fluid and consistent. But ultimately, I think of athletes especially where they, they, they work so hard and they train so much, years and years and years of practice, they get to the point where they've so trained their brain that the motions and the movements come as easy as breathing. It's second nature. That's the, that's the reason why you practice. That's the reason why you work on fundamentals as an athlete. And then at the autonomous stage, the brain's activity is switched to what they call the basal ganglia. It's the region involved with automatic functioning. It's like breathing. I think of what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5. He tells them, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ. It's like breath. Perhaps when the Apostle Paul was encouraging the Thessalonian church to to pray without ceasing, he was calling them to this continual and consistent practice of prayer, this continual communing with God that was as if it was breath. Would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 6, please? We are continuing our study in Daniel. We're calling this study Kingdom Come. Now, the the book of Daniel is divided into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 6, is narrative. The second half is prophetic. And so we're finally wrapping up the first half of the book of Daniel, looking at the final narrative. Each of the first six chapters operates as like an independent story, uh, as a part of the larger story that's being told in Babylon. As we turn to chapter 6 today, we're going to see Daniel, this exile from Judah in a foreign land, formerly known as Babylon. Now it's under the control of the the Persians. And we're going to see the threat of the lion's den bearing down on Daniel. Imminent threats, imminent death. And Daniel's response with the, the, the gnarling teeth of the devouring lion is to do what he's always done. He communes with God. As we turn our attention to the sixth chapter of Daniel, no doubt you've heard this story. This is, even if you're not a church person, a religious person, a Bible person, you've no doubt heard of Daniel and the lion's den. It's one of the most famous narratives in all of Scripture. I think when I was a kid, we had this this gargantuan Bible that collected dust on our coffee table, this big family Bible, and it was filled with these glossy pages with cool pictures that I used to love to flip through. And one of them was a picture of Daniel in the lion's den. I think this was the picture. Maybe you guys can, have you seen that picture before? I think that's the picture that was in this old glossy family Bible. This is painted by a a Britain painter in the 1800s. He calls it Daniel in the lion's den. And perhaps you grew up with images like this with Daniel in the lion's den. I asked my small group guys on, on Thursday morning, I said, hey, how was this lesson taught to you growing up in the church? If you went to Sunday school or if you heard a lesson on Daniel in the lion's den, kind of what do you remember? And kind of all they could remember was they were like, you know, it's always felt warm and fuzzy, like warm, fuzzy, you know, teachings around like Daniel, you know, combing the hair of the lion and cuddling with the lions in this warm, cozy little lion's den where he sat peacefully. And as I read chapter 6, when I'm telling you it's anything but warm and fuzzy, there's a conspiracy to murder an innocent man that's unfolding before our eyes. There's, there's racial hatred that motivates the conspirators 
to try to get this dirty exile from Judah. And as the chapter unfolds next week, we're going to see that there's this scene. Not, I mean, like my wife is saying, she goes, if God stopped the mouth of the lion, as we're going to read in our text next week, like what's that even look like? Was it, was it violent on the, on, the, on the lions? Like how did that unfold if there's an angel of the Lord stopping the mouths of the lions? But we're going to see next week that there are men, their wives, and children who are actually torn to bits and their bones are broken. This is not like a warm, fuzzy Sunday school lesson. This is, a, this, is a, this is an intense story. So here's what I'm asking you before we jump into the text. I know you've probably, if you're a church person, you've probably had a million sermons or a thousand Sunday school lessons on Daniel and the lions. And you probably have some preconceived ideas of how this story unfolds. Can I just ask you to suspend that for a few minutes? And as we unpack this text, I'm going to ask you and ask God to give you fresh lenses to see things anew as we journey through this well-known text. Sound good? Let's pray. Oh God, as we look at this passage this morning, God, this well-known passage, God, as we see this faithful servant of the Lord, Daniel, with the face uh, facing death, with imminent danger around the corner, as we see him fall to his knees and turn his face to you and pray, God, it reminds us. God, it reminds us that, that we have so little control that we think we have. And prayer is... is is this reflection of our, un, uh, our unclutching control over our lives. It's us declaring dependence on you, not independence from you. And so God, as we look at Daniel's example, God, would you allow us to look into our own lives? And God, I'm mindful right now of just the globe and the, the, the difficult and brutal and horrible things that are unfolding all across the planet, God. I pray as our friends in Israel face continuous war and as the people of Gaza face continual war as evil and demonic ideologies seek to take over the world and slaughter innocents, God, I pray that you would make yourself known. God, that as people fall to their knees and as they are in the foxholes of life, God, that as they lift their eyes heavenward, that you would meet them in powerful ways. God, I pray for us today as we teach through this text. God, would you give us eyes to see the things we need to see? Would you give us hearts to understand the things you want us to understand today? Would you be glorified in this place, Lord? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through four sections of Scripture. We'll pause and we'll teach a little bit, then read through some more. Let's read through the first three verses together. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all others. He became distinguished above the high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom kingdom. Let's pause there. So in the uh, aftermath of the overthrow of the Babylonians, that was at the end of last week's passage, we saw Belshazzar, the sort of JV version king of the Babylonian empire. He is killed and the Medo-Persians come in and take over. And so here we're in a new kingdom. It's no longer the Babylonians. It's now the Medo-Persians. And in the aftermath of the overflow of the Babylonians in this new government that's being established by the Persians, somehow Daniel again finds himself at the top of the political food chain. 
He's positioned not only to be over the governors of the Persian provinces, but also over those who oversaw the governors. He is like number two in power in this new, new kingdom. Evidently, the reputation of Daniel from his 60-plus years of serving the Babylonians with excellency, evidently his reputation preceded him with the Persians. Somehow they knew of his abilities. But you know, it wasn't just the reputation of what he had done with the Babylonians that preceded him. It was also just his integrity and his character and who he was as a man. Look at what the text says in verse 3. Daniel was distinguished above all others. This is through the eyes of the Persians. They're looking at Daniel real time and saying, he's a good dude. This guy is distinguished. He had an excellent spirit that they noticed within him. And as a result, we read at the very end of verse 3 that this new king, King Darius, the Persian king, he plans to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. What a compliment to Daniel. So the first thing we see as we begin to unpack this story, there's going to be four movements in our text today. The first thing we see is the promotion of the distinguished. We see the promotion of the distinguished. Daniel here is the one who's distinguished. He's distinguished above all others. I like how the New Living Translation puts it in a little bit more digestible terms. Listen to the New Living's translation of verse 3. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officials, high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. And, and Daniel was an old man by, by this time. He is an old dude. He had served 65, 66 plus years with the with the Babylonians, and now he's in the new kingdom of the, of the Persians. And so he's, he's a guy who's in his 80s at least by the time we get into chapter 6 of Daniel. He's an old, old man. And so as he's, as he's kind of getting into the Persian Empire, we, we, we know that around 538 B.C., there was a decree that was given that the Jews could go back to Judah and Jerusalem. You know, it was prophesied that they would spend 70 years in captivity. That 70 years has is, uh, uh, eclipsed or has elapsed. And about the time we're in Daniel chapter 6 is probably about the time where the Jews were beginning to head back to Jerusalem. And for some reason, we have no indication that Daniel went back to Jerusalem. He remained for some reason in modern-day Iraq, the former Babylonian Empire, now the, the Medo-Persian Empire. For some reason, Daniel chose to stay. Why did he not go back with his fellow Israelites, do you think, to the homeland, the land he was exiled from as a teenager. Why did he stay? I appreciate the, the insight of, of David Helm, who, who I, I use his commentary in this series quite a bit. Here's what David Helm writes. He says, evidently Daniel stayed behind when the Babylonian captivity ended rather than returning with those who went back to Israel to rebuild the temple and city wall. He simply didn't make the journey. Perhaps he stayed behind because of his age. After all, he was an old man by this time and the king let the Jews return to Israel. More likely, though, Daniel remained because God had given him good kingdom work to do. Perhaps he wanted nothing more than to leverage the years he had left into faithful service to the people and place God had called him more than seven decades earlier. God had sent Daniel and his fellow Israelites into captivity. We've been talking about that since we started this book. It was the will of God to send his faithful into exile in Babylon. And for six chapters, Daniel and his friends have been witnesses to the Most High God, to the Babylonian world, and now to the Persian world. They were, according to God's prophecy through Jeremiah 29, they were in Babylon seeking the welfare of the city where God had sent them into exile. 
And since chapter 1, all we have seen from Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has been faithfulness. They're not perfect men, but man, have we seen faithfulness from these men. Chapter 1, they refuse to to compromise the conscience of their heart and and belly up to the table of the king. And so they eat vegetables instead. The king sees that they're ten times better than the rest. They're men of conviction even as teenagers. Chapter 2, we see them calling upon the God of mercy and God supernaturally revealing the content and interpretation of the king's dreams, which ended up saving dozens of lives. Chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down and violate the law of God and bow down to this image that was made up in the image of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And they stand in fierce resolve, even at threat of death, even as they're being tossed into the fiery furnace. Chapter 4, we see Daniel speaking hard, God-given truths into Nebuchadnezzar's life, leading to his conversion. Chapter 5, we see Nebuchadnezzar, or rather, we see Daniel speaking hard, God-given truths into King Belshazzar's life, leading to condemnation. But what we see again and again and again in these six chapters is the continual and consistent faithfulness to God and pursuit of God in these men. Even as he and his friends were under the threat of death, living as exiles, facing fierce persecution, they faithfully and continually and consistently pursued their God. And let's not let this reality of the age of Daniel escape us here. I want to speak to those of you who are senior citizens today. Those of you that are a little bit older, maybe in retirement years. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who just recently retired after years of just hard work and a successful vocation. She's smart. She's godly. She's wise. She's in good health, financially secure. I said, man, you are in the sweet spot. You've got wisdom to share. You've got financial freedom. You have the physical health to allow you to have the most impactful years of your life are ahead of you. I know that the message of our culture is sort of like, if you're old, let's kind of push you aside. Let's prop up the young, the youthful, the beautiful. Man, I'm telling you, the most, in my experience, 25 years of serving the local church as a pastor, the people who have had the greatest impact have been those men and women who are in their retirement years, who have a kingdom vision and recognize that they've been blessed by God and they willfully and willingly step into self-sacrifice, to giving themselves away. Those of you in this room who are senior saints, I want you to look around. There are younger men and women in this church who so desperately need your wisdom and need your friendship and need your companionship and need you sharpening them. God has a plan for you. He has a will for you. He has a purpose for your life. Don't don't buy the lie of our world that retirement is shuffling off to the end of a dock, dangling your feet in the water, and riding off into the sunset while the wisdom that God has given you collects dust. Give it away. Give it away. May your life have an impact till you breathe your last breath. Amen? As we look at Daniel, we see that he is distinguished. He is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. And it was his character that spoke for him. Perhaps he wore Christian tunics. I don't know. Maybe he had a Christian bumper sticker on his buggy. I don't know how how well he he kind of wore his, his faith on the outside. And there's nothing wrong with wearing your faith on the outside by all means. But may that be a reflection of the character of your heart. It seems here that Daniel is a man with deep conviction. He's a man of deep character. He's distinguished among all the rest. And the implication for you and me is that we are to be people of integrity in a fallen world. We are to be people of stability in an unsure and morally fluid and corrupt culture. 
And as we begin to look at Daniel, I think the, the main idea that I'm pulling from this passage today that I want to share with you, I'll say this multiple times today, is simply this. As we look at this faithful man bending his knees in prayers, we'll see in a few minutes, we see, the, we see the continual and consistent pursuit of God in Daniel's life. So here's my message to you this morning. The continual and consistent pursuit of God will carry you in and through all circumstances. It is the infrastructure of your life of faith. It is the rhythms, the spiritual rhythms in your life. The continual and consistent pursuit of God will carry you through all circumstances. We see the promotion of the distinguished. Turn with me back. Verse 4. Let's read through verse 9 together. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to his kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because uh, he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. What a vile conspiracy. Now, O king, verse 8, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Stop there. These jealous government officials want Daniel gone. They cannot dig up dirt on him because he's impeccable. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of character. So they try to find grounds and charges and they can't. So what do they do? They, 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 look, at, they look at his unwavering commitment to the God Most High, and they say, if there's a weakness in the man, this is the weakness. We'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Can you imagine living the kind of life where your greatest weakness is your love and fidelity to the Most High God? Oh, God, may that be said of me. May that be said of us. May that be said of our church for your glory. Second thing we see in the text today as we read through chapter 6 is we see the conspiring of the corrupt. After we, see, after we see the promotion of the distinguished, we see the conspiring of the corrupt. And we see that there are kind of two categories that these men have against, two, two, two areas that they have against Daniel. It's jealousy and ethnic prejudice. His success meant that they were prevented from the top spot. As he flourished, they were reminded that they weren't flourishing quite as much, and it bothered them. And so they conspired together. You know what? Did you read that language? It's insane to me. Like, we live in an America where Democrats and Republicans hate each other. We're polarized. And this is like, this is a bipartisan effort. I mean, they say that all the governors, the counselors, the satraps, and the officials, and the prefects, every single one of them came together. There is unanimous agreement in the governing houses of Babylon to come against Daniel. It's like, man, they were unified in their hatred of this man. It's insane to me. And they refer to Daniel, if you go, if you skip ahead a little bit to, to chapter, or verse 13, uh, as they're talking with the king, they, as they're referring to Daniel, they refer to him using an ethnic slur. They say, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, 
pays no attention to you, O king, dot, dot, dot. Now listen, this is, this is the number two man in the whole country. He's the most powerful man in Babylon minus King Darius, or in Persia minus King Darius. He's got a 70-year career of exemplary services, of faithfulness, of, of serving with excellency. As far as you can see, they have zero complaints against him. And yet they want to reduce him in this moment to nothing more than one of those dirty exiles from Judah. The statement is filled with racial hatred. Again, to quote David Helm, he says, Notice how the official showed their disdain for Daniel by denigrating his, his ethnicity. With these words, one of those exiles from Judah, their own hatred is unmasked. They use an ethnic slur to insult the one they despise. Daniel wasn't one of them. And as a result, they were prejudiced against him. There was racial hatred pointed toward Daniel and his peers. They believed they were superior to this exiled race of people who was occupying the land or was across the land of Persia. And yet Daniel is in this top spot. He's a high-ranking official in the Persian government. And these people decide because of his top spot, they want to take him down. And as we chatted about this on Thursday, there's this sense here as they revile and want to murder Daniel that in a certain sense, he was sort of a federal head representing all of the exiles. He was like the top-ranked exile in all the land, and by taking out Daniel, in a way, it's a blow to the entire race of people that lives among them. And so as a result, they'll stop at nothing to destroy him. They agreed that the king should establish an ordinance in verse 7. And enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except the king should be put into the den of lions. Man, they're really hoping to get the king to do their dirty work, aren't they? If they can get the king to kill their man, they, they, got, they don't got blood on their hands. And so Daniel here, he, he chooses to go pray. And we're going to see that here in a minute. And as Daniel chooses to go pray, it's like, and I was listening to uh, uh, Alistair Begg teach this passage earlier this week. And he, he, he pointed out some really interesting things here. He, he, he wasn't just saying, you can't prevent me from praying to my God. There was like, almost like there's something more deep going on to Daniel. It's as if Daniel was, was saying that he refused, he was protesting against a, a law of the state that refused to recognize there was a higher law than them. There was an arrogance in the state to make this law that, that was intending to be above the law of God. And Daniel, in a way, is protesting and saying, no, no, don't you understand that all governing authorities have been put in place by God? Don't you understand that you are under the authority of a sovereign reigning king? And by him continuing to pray to his God, he is, he is saying to them, I protest against that. That's, that's blasphemy. He was protesting the presumption of the government, believing that they were the lawgiver. They were not the lawgiver. There is one lawgiver. And Daniel, in his disobedience to them, is showing that he does not agree with the way in which they have positioned themselves at the top of the lawgiving. And so he had an unswerving commitment to God. And when he prayed, it wasn't just that Daniel was having a, a, a little quiet time with the Lord in his upper chamber, as we'll see here in verse 10. He, he was declaring that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the true God, and he was the final word. And it really leaves no space. Now, if you look back at the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire before it, they were pluralistic. 
meaning they believed in many gods, in many pathways to enlightenment, if you will. And pluralism is, on one hand, supposedly very um, accepting, you know, and very open-handed. Hey, your God is your God, my God is my God. They were also polytheistic in that there were multiple gods. And, and pluralism, you know, as long as everyone kind of wants to play nice, they, they, they're, uh, they, they're cool. But if you ever claimed that there is one true God, that goes against the rules of pluralism. And that's exactly what Daniel was saying. He's like, no, 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 there's not many gods. There's not many paths to God. There's one God, the God of Israel. Yahweh. There's one God. And the one thing that a pluralistic culture cannot embrace is the statement or the truth that there is one true God. Reminds me of Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, as he stood in front of the the Jewish officials in Acts 5, or Acts 4, he said that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in writing a letter to Timothy, he says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The message of Christianity is the message of the cross. And the message of Christianity is that Christ and Christ alone is the way the truth, and the life. The message of Christianity is that salvation is found in no one other than Jesus. The message of Christianity is that Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. And that message of exclusivity in a pluralistic Western world is increasingly becoming controversial, and it's not tolerated. And we're going to continue to see the lack of tolerance for the message of the cross, even in the Western world. It's been the case in other parts of the world forever. Today, there are Hundreds of thousands, millions of our brothers and sisters under persecution because of their unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ. We're beginning to feel that. I said the very first time, when we started this series back in September, I said the winds of culture are changing. And I believe in our lifetime, those of us that want to hold unswervingly, unwaveringly to the cross, I think we're going to experience not light persecution, but real persecution. I mean, for, for 25 years I've been preaching, and, and when I get to the, the passages about suffering in the New Testament, the suffering that we read about in the New Testament almost exclusively is suffering that's brought on by persecution. The faithful being persecuted because of their faith, and it's really hard to contextualize that because we haven't had to experience that in America, which has been one of the blessings of our country. But we all can feel the change, can't we? We can all feel it. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, after he gives the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you, Christian, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he says, when that happens. Your reward is great in heaven. He says, if they persecuted the prophets who were before you, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, outside the Western world, this is the case for millions of Christians But it seems to me that the days are upon us where the Christian is reviled and persecuted. Where the world will utter all kinds of evil lies against the Christian. I don't want to be sensational here in saying this, but I believe that it's true. So, how important then, how important then in your life and in my life, as we pursue Christ, that we we ingrain within our life continual and consistent practices that allow us to pursue our God that becomes like breath to us. The continual and consistent pursuit of God will carry you through all circumstances. And then to Daniel's prayer that I sort of cheated and 
looked at here a few minutes ago. Let's look at verse 10. After we see the promotion of the distinguished, we see the conspiring of the corrupt, and then we see Daniel's response to the whole evil plot. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so when Daniel knows that death is imminent, if he continues to practice his faith, if he continues to bow down to Yahweh, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, what did he do? He went to his house where he had a window in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Notice that word previously. This is a ongoing discipline or practice or rhythm in the life of Daniel. And even though there was this threat of death, he did what he always did. Continually and consistently turns his face to Jerusalem, gets down on his knees three times a day and prays. As he had done previously. This rhythm of prayer, this spiritual discipline, this practice of faithfulness was deeply ingrained in the spirituality of Daniel. And here's the third thing I want you to write down. We see the prayers of the faithful. I wrestled with what language to use here. I put the discipline of the godly, the prayers of the faithful, the the rhythms of the faithful. The idea here is here is a faithful man who had an unwavering commitment to the Lord. If you want to write the continual and consistent prayers of the faithful, uh, we see just a man here who is unwavering in his commitment to Yahweh, in his commitment to God. He's facing Jerusalem three times a day, calling out to God from his knees morning, noon, and night. And the temple had been long destroyed at this point, and yet Daniel was still worshiping the living God. And this was the one thing that the conspirators had on Daniel. They couldn't find any breaks in his moral character or in his practice. There was no fudge numbers in his books. He was a man of integrity. So they say, hey, if we can't find anything against him, it's going to be this. It's going to be his, his unwavering commitment to his God. They knew somehow, some way of Daniel's consistent prayer life. He wasn't the guy, it appears, who went out of the street corners and lifted loud prayers to be noticed by people. He wasn't, he wasn't being like uh, uh, a guy who was religious on the outside but corrupt in the middle. He was a guy who would go to the privacy of his home and in his own prayer closet, he would continually and consistently call out to his God. Again, may that be said of you and me. That our greatest weakness is our unwavering commitment to the Lord. May may it be true of you and me when the people of the world look at our rhythms, the rhythms of our life. If they can say, man, I know a lot about this person, but the one thing I know for sure is their commitment to their Lord and their desire to, to lift their hearts and minds to Him, to commune with Him in prayer and the study of Scripture, to sit under the teach word on Sunday mornings. May that be our continual and consistent pursuit. And he's facing Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is where the temple was. It's where the Holy of Holies was before the temple was destroyed. In facing Jerusalem, he's facing God. This is just Daniel turning his face to the place where God dwelt, morning, day, and night. And, and we got to also, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Romans 13 here. If you skip into the New Testament, Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 talks about how we are to obey the governing authorities that God has placed over us. And yet here Daniel is in disobedience to the governing authorities who, he had, who God had placed over him. Why is it okay for Daniel to be disobedient to these governing rules, this, this precept, this law that was passed? Why is it good for Daniel here to disobey the government? Well, it gets us back to the reality that there is a higher law. There is the law of the land, but there is a higher law. There is the law of God. And when he was speaking to the Jewish authorities, 
in Acts 5, Peter said to them, we must obey God rather than men. So it's not hard for us to imagine a time and a place where the law of the land and the law in God, of God come into conflict and a decision has to be made. Am I going to obey the law of the land or am I going to obey the law of the Lord? When those days come, what will sustain the Christian? One commentator, Joshua Miller, he writes this. He says, Corrie ten Boom broke the law of Germany when she hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. But she would have broken a higher law had she not tried to prevent the murder of innocents. Today, Christians are being called upon to make, more, to make difficult ethical choices. As the world becomes more and more secular and sinful, believers will increasingly find themselves taking stands that are unpopular in positions that may even violate the laws of the land. And when those days come, when those days come, because they'll come, maybe not in our lifetime, but they'll come in the Western world, what will sustain the Christian? Well, not the least of which is the continual and consistent pursuit of God. It's those ingrained disciplines that connect our hearts to God's heart, that remind us of his sovereignty and his bigness and his ultimate authority over all things. The continual and consistent pursuit of God reminds us who he is in a fallen and broken world. Let's finish up quick. Let's read the last few verses, 11 through 18. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They caught him praying like they knew they would. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any other god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is, the one, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. The king, when he heard these words, he was much distressed. It appears as if Darius loved Daniel. He was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. We got you. You got to kill this man. Verse 14, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, who you serve continually, may he deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with, this, with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Here's the last thing I want you to write down today as we work through this passage. We see the condemnation of the blameless. We see the condemnation of the blameless, the promotion of the distinguished, the conspiring of the corrupt, the prayers of the faithful, and now the condemnation of the blameless. If you skip ahead to next week's text, verse 22, after Daniel, spoiler alert, he doesn't get eaten by the lions, okay? I'm going to go ahead and tell you that right now. As he's rescued out of the lion's den, as he and King Darius are talking back and forth, verse 22, Daniel says, My God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So he was condemned, though he had done no wrong. 
And I think it's interesting that if you look at the, the reactions of Daniel in chapter 2, when they were facing threat of death under King Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 6, where he's facing threat of death under King Darius. Someone in my small group on Thursday kind of highlighted this. Chapter 2, Daniel's much younger, and the king is out of his mind because he had this dream and he can't interpret it. So he sends all of his wise men and magicians and enchanters, can't give him the interpretation of his dream. He goes into a murderous rampage. He says, I'm killing everybody in the land who's supposedly a, a, a wise man. And so Daniel goes to the king and says, give me 24 hours. And he goes to his friends in Daniel 2, verses 17 and 18. He runs to his house with a threat of death imminent. And he, he goes to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So in chapter 2, when the threat of death was facing a much younger Daniel, he was desperate to not die. And he's begging his friends, hey, our God is a God of mercy. Petition him that he might save us from destruction. But when we look at chapter 6, the one who's distressed isn't Daniel, it's the king. Do you notice that? The king labored till the sun went down, it says in verse 14. He was much distressed, it says in verse 14. He says to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. He spent the night fasting and wanted no diversions and found no sleep, it says in verse 18. The king is distressed, and Daniel doesn't seem to be. Somehow, the way Daniel conducted himself in this moment left the king distressed. Jeremy pointed this out to me on, on Thursday. So, so this is probably very early in the Babylonian reign. This is probably a couple years, a year, two, three, four, five. It's early on in the, in, in the Babylon's takeover, or rather in Persia's takeover of Babylon. So King Darius is new to the throne. But somehow in this short time, he deeply loves this man. I mean, deeply loves him. So much so that the most powerful man in the land is distressed. He's labored. He's fasting. He can't sleep. And so, like Jeremy said this week, somehow the way Daniel conducted himself left this king distressed. This king loved Daniel. It speaks to the missional heart of Daniel. He was sent by God into exile, into a foreign land, to be an ambassador for God. He, he, he was called to be at home in Babylon. God had given Daniel a word for the world, and Daniel took that job so seriously and for 70 years, we've seen his faithfulness to king after king after king. And here, when he's standing before Darius, Darius' heart is broken because he's only experienced love and truth from this man. What a, what, a, what a commentary on the way the missionary is to handle himself or herself. Let's be so, like Jeremy said on, on Thursday, gosh, wouldn't this be cool? Let us be so good at loving the lost that they weep when we're in distress. Think of the unbelieving men and women God has put in your life, the, those who are far from God, who maybe even reject your God. May you be so good at loving them and being the aroma of Christ in their life that when your heart is broken or when you're going through a trial, they are broken with you. Ah, it just speaks to an honest and sincere love of this king and it's being expressed. And yet, <laughs> Daniel just seems like, he doesn't seem like he's too stressed. At least he didn't record it for us. There's nothing in here that tells us what Daniel's going through as he's being thrown into the lion's den. We don't know what's going on in his inner world. I can tell you what's going on in my inner world. Have I ever told you guys that my secret ambition is to get attacked by a mountain lion, get a really cool scar on my face, live to tell it, and then have an awesome story the rest of my life about a scar? Wouldn't that be cool? 
No, I just think it would be cool. I don't want to die. But if I could survive a lion attack, it would be pretty sweet. And especially if I killed it with my bare hands. Oh my gosh, the sermon illustrations would be amazing. But I'm thinking of Daniel. Like, he doesn't tell us anything about what's going on in his world here. And so I was laughing about this. It's like maybe he, maybe he was freaking out and he just chose not to record it in Daniel chapter 6 because he's the author of the book. So maybe he's like, I don't want anybody knowing that I was, you know, crying and begging God for help. But maybe he wasn't distressed because, man, he's 80 plus years old. He's seen the faithfulness of God in his life. Maybe he's like, you know, I know my God. And I trust in his character. I trust in his sovereignty. Whatever happens, happens. I know he's good. I like to think there's a third option. I think that Daniel was... Just, you know, he'd been serving so hard for 70 years, 70 plus years, putting up with the foolishness of the world. I think as he kind of hung out on the ledge of that lion's den, he sort of thought to himself, you know, death would be kind of a sweet release right now. I'm just kind of done with this world. I'm just so done with the darkness here. I just think, Lord, if this is my time, I'm ready. I'm ready. A lifetime of consistent and continual pursuit of God And Daniel here seems to have this quiet hope, a a godly resolve. It reminds me of his friends back in chapter 3 where they're standing on the edge of the fiery furnace and they're talking about how their God is a delivering God. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 3, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. If if this be so, if if we're going to go in the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he'll deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, he may choose not to. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is Daniel's but if not moment, I think. It's like, you know what? God may choose to rescue me from these lions. He may not. He's still God, and I know that for sure. I think that sort of resolve, and I've seen it in senior saints. Again, I'm talking to my older generation here today. Those of you that have walked with Jesus through, through losses and hard times, through valleys, I love to sit at the feet of men and women who have, who have lived faithful lives through dark valleys and mountaintop experiences, who have continually and consistently pursued God throughout the course of their life. There's so much to learn there. And as I look at Daniel's quiet resolve here, I just see a faithful, faithful, old, faithful man who continually and consistently pursued God all the days of his life, and he has all the confidence in the world as he faces what could potentially be his end. I think one of the dangers for us in this text is to moralize the passage as well. I want to be careful we don't do that. What I mean by that is as we talk about the continual and consistent pursuit of God that we see in Daniel, as we look to the example of Daniel, it would be very easy for me to say, hey, so therefore, be like Daniel. But the message of the Bible is not that we be like Daniel or Paul or James or Abraham or any other patriarch or apostle. The message of the Bible is that we are to be like Jesus. And that's how we define discipleship here at Heritage. We believe a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, who's being molded, shaped, and formed into the image of Jesus, and who is living on mission for Jesus. We believe that's a, a disciple does all three of those things. The goal is Christ-likeness, not Daniel-likeness. So I want to be cautious here that I'm not moralizing this passage and telling you be, dare to be a Daniel. I'm not telling you to dare to be a Daniel. I'm telling you to pursue Jesus. That's the point of Scripture. Now, Daniel's example absolutely is exemplary, and we can learn from that. We need mentors in our lives who teach us how to walk in faithfulness. He's a mentor in the pages of Scripture that we can look to for sure. But he was still a fallen and sinful man. 
Like every other man who's ever lived, mine is Jesus. Daniel is still in need of a Savior. And as I look at Daniel praying daily, facing Jerusalem, facing God, he wasn't praying to himself. He wasn't relying on his own strength in these moments. His prayers were anchoring him to the one who could save him. He was calling out to God most high. Daniel's prayers, though exemplary to look at, they were prayers that connected him to the God of the universe, to the sovereign God who had numbered his days, who knows all things, who, who, who placed the stars in the sky, who spins the earth on its axis, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, who breathes the breath of life into your lungs, and who loves you. That's who Daniel was clinging to, anchoring himself to, calling out to. His example is exemplary, but it is his God to whom we cling. His prayers were a declaration of dependence on God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including Daniel. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In fact, do you see how this passage so clearly points us to Jesus? Do you see it? Do you see how this parallels the gospel and the gospel accounts of Jesus? Think about it for a second. In Daniel 6, an innocent man is conspired against. In Daniel 6, the innocent man is found praying as he is taken into custody. In Daniel 6, a weaker leader allows the murderous conspiracy to be carried out. In Daniel 6, the blameless man is sealed in a tomb behind a stone sealed by the king. In Daniel 6, the condemned man acted as a representative of the whole. In the Gospels, as we look to Jesus, an innocent man is conspired against. Like the satraps and governing authorities in Daniel's time, Judas and the Sanhedrin and the other religious authorities conspired against Jesus, an innocent man. The innocent man is found praying as he is taken into custody. Like Daniel in the upper room facing Jerusalem, we see Jesus on his face, blood as, or sweat as blood, crying in the garden of Gethsemane in the city of Jerusalem. Daniel faced Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem praying out to God as he's taken into custody. In the Gospels, we see a weak leader allowing a murderous conspiracy to be carried out. Like the weak King Darius, we see Pontius Pilate weakly allowing the Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin to, to carry out their murderous plot against Jesus. Like Daniel, in the Gospels, we see a blameless man facing a death sentence, sealed in a tomb behind a stone. Not a lion's den, but a borrowed tomb on that first Good Friday as Jesus was laid. Like Daniel, the condemned man acted as a representative of the whole. Where Daniel is representative of the whole of the exiled, exiled Jews, Jesus represents the whole of the redeemed from every nation, tribe, and language. This text points us to Jesus. I think it's so amazing, by the way. This is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. And there's lots of reasons. I love apologetics. But think about this. This really happened. There really was a kingdom called the Medo-Persian kingdom. There really was an overthrow of Babylon. Daniel really was a Hebrew man who went into exile, who lived in a foreign land. He really did uh, act as a, as a, as a, uh, an advisor to multiple kings. This moment really happened. This old man really did get thrown into a lion's den. These are the events of history that God orchestrated. And then God, by his Holy Spirit, inspired Daniel to write these words. And God inspired the writing of the whole Bible. 
And as we look at Daniel, this, you know, this, is, this is something that took place 530 years before Jesus was born, 540 years before Jesus was born. And as God was orchestrating the events of history, he was creating this living metaphor, this type, this shadow, this picture that points us to the fulfillment that came in his son Jesus. And it's not just a, a brilliant work of literature, which scripture is. It's also a historical document showing the lordship of God over the events of history, revealing himself to us. I'm a Christian because of these sorts of parallels. It's, it, when I see Jesus in an Old Testament book, 538 years before the birth of Jesus, in my mind is blown. It caused me to want to fall to my knees and worship God for the way he has revealed himself to us. Our hope is in the one whom we are pursuing. Our hope is not in the act of prayer or in our own personal disciplines. No, our hope is in the one to whom those disciplines connect us to. The continual and consistent pursuit of God will carry you and me through all circumstances. When we, when we, when we incorporate the disciplines of prayer and the study of scripture and the worshiping with the saints and the disciplines of fasting and, and fellowship and solitude, these disciplines that we have in the Christian faith, when we consistently and continually incorporate these into our life, it anchors us to Jesus. And why do we need to be anchored to Jesus? Because though we are not perfectly obedient, he was. And when we come to Jesus, we are anchored to his perfect obedience. When we come to the cross, when we, when we engage with the gospel, God in his son gives us his righteousness and takes away our shame. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, as we come to the Lord's table today, it is a great reminder of what God has done for us. His body has broken for us. His blood was shed for us. The, the act of the Lord's Supper, the act of communion, this ordinance that God has given his church is a reminder for us of what it is our God has done for us. Jesus being fully God and fully man, sinless in every way, was our substitute when he went to the cross. The punishment, the wrath our sin deserves was poured out on his broken body. And as his body was broken in our place and as his blood was shed, it was by the shedding of his blood that he atoned for our sins, that he washed sins free for you and me, that we can be made righteous forgiven, redeemed, our sins cast as far as the east is from the west. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to the Lord's table, we are declaring that truth. We are saying, God, you saved me in your son. You saved me through Christ. I think of the Apostle Paul's language to the church in Galatia. As we come to the table, we declare, like the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is not a foxhole prayer. This is not a Hail Mary. This is a daily anchoring to the truth of the gospel and the life of the Christian. Amen? Let me pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion, would you, God, prepare us to receive the Lord's Supper? God, would you prepare our hearts and minds to, to come forward, God, not as just some routine religious observance, but as an act of worship, God? God, as men and women who have trusted in you, who have come to saving faith in your Son, God, as we come forward today, may it be an act of obedience, a statement of faith, worship. And God, let us not forget that as we gather around the table, we gather around as men and women from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group. We are the family of God that is... There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the beautiful table of God where 
We all come together in unity, bound under Christ. And so, God, I pray as we prepare our hearts and minds in this moment for the Lord's Supper, God, that it would, in fact, be those things. It would, in fact, be worship. It would, in fact, be a declaration of dependence on you. It would, in fact, be a statement of faith, an act of worship, God. Meet us today in this ancient practice you've given your church. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.